All right, everybody. Let's get down to business. Uh, open your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Matthew chapter 5. Good morning, church. That's enough of that. Um, I, <laughs> I'm sick. I have strep throat, so I'm a little short right now. But So no, no kissing or anything after the message. Yeah. Steve Morrill, too. Yeah. Um, so this morning, we are going to be in two verses of Matthew, but I take something like that as a challenge more than anything, and so don't think we're getting out of here early. Um, we're in Matthew 5, 31 through 32 as we're continuing this series, a Sermon on the Mount, looking at Jesus, um, bringing the people back to what the law originally pointed them to, essentially saying, here's what, uh, here's what they were really saying in the Old Testament, oftentimes, and here's how maybe we've gotten it wrong in the culture in which Jesus was speaking. This week's message is especially going to be evident of what that division looks like. So Matthew 5, 31 through 32 says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's it. Two verses on marriage and divorce. Um, we cannot talk about marriage in the same way that we talk about anger and that we talk about purity and that we talk about lust because our primary question about marriage and divorce when Jesus teaches on it is this. So what is Jesus's position on marriage and divorce, right? How does Jesus tell us it's supposed to work? What does it look like, especially when do people get divorced? What does it look like for people to get remarried? What, what makes someone allowed to do something like that? Last week, we talked about purity, and Jesus is telling people to cut off their hands and gouge out their eyes. And we were pretty much operating under the assumption early on in that passage that Jesus was being figurative. Hopefully, none of you went home and actually cut things off and gouged things out. But we also know reading this passage that Jesus isn't being figurative. We know that he seems to be being very specific and very clear in a very simple way. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what exactly is Jesus addressing here? And why even would the Pharisees ask him this question? Now, it's helpful in situations like this where you only have a very few verses to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is most, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus reminding the disciples of things that he's already taught them or shortening those things. So it's like he's accumulating all of the stuff that he thinks is most important for someone to know to be a follower of Jesus and to be truly righteous, more righteous than the Pharisees. And he's often hitting different things going like, well, like uh, there's a teaching over here on this. He includes a very brief description of that teaching and he does the same thing over here. Now, uh, because of that, we're actually going to spend this morning in order to get a fuller picture of this, looking at Matthew 19, a passage there, Matthew 19, three through nine. And, um, and we're going to, so you want, if you want to turn there, you can, um, because um, this is the actual longer version of the interaction that Jesus has with some religious leaders 
talking about the issue of marriage and divorce, and we can tell from the language that he's abbreviating it for the Sermon on the Mount. Now, another take on the Sermon on the Mount is that it is actually a collection of different sermons, various different sermons, and as a result of that, it's basically Jesus um, summing up different things, or they're compiling different teachings that Jesus has made, and as a result of that, that is also what this possibly could be. It could be a couple of different teachings, and this is one of them. It doesn't really have any impact on how how real it is, how genuine, authentic, anything like that, or how we're to interpret it. So we're going to look at Matthew 19, 3 through 9, and it says this. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So this is Jesus' teaching to the Pharisee religious leaders on divorce. Now, in order to understand why they're talking to him about this and what he's saying to them, we have to basically understand what was going on at this time, culturally speaking. The Pharisees would often ask Jesus about something that was sort of a hot topic of the time. They would ask him about something because they themselves were debating it and they wanted to know what he thought about it. And so that's exactly what they're doing here. Now, there are a couple of different viewpoints and perspectives on divorce, and we need to be able to talk about those two different things. This is where this sermon gets incredibly interesting, especially if you thought this is a sermon just on marriage and divorce. At the time, divorce was extremely common. Divorce was very common. A lot of people got divorced, even in the Jewish culture. It was actually considered to be a very normal thing. And whenever something was going wrong, oftentimes that was all that it took to end a marriage. And you didn't have to do much to end a marriage. Now, there were different rationale by which people decided whether you were val- like valid- in a valid way ending a marriage. But one of the dominant schools of thought at the time, and this is why they were asking Jesus about this, is a guy called Rabbi Hillel. What Rabbi Hillel was teaching was out of Exodus, and he was teaching something called any cause divorce. This is the actual phrase used to describe the divorce that he taught. Here's where it comes from in Deuteronomy 24. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Okay, this is a description in Deuteronomy on how a guy can justifiably um, allow his wife to leave or how a woman can get divorced from a guy in the Old Testament. Now, Rabbi Hillel, what he did is he took this passage and he took a very specific verse out of this passage and he interpreted it to mean something that changed for everybody the definition of divorce. And here's like a couple of words that he changes. It's just right here where it says, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. 
some indecency in her, okay? This one phrase right here, some indecency in her, is the rationale by which divorce is happening, okay? So this rabbi said this. He said, okay, in the Old Testament, they allowed divorce for this reason, some indecency in her. What does that mean? Now, if you literally translate some indecency in her, it actually translates to mean, hold on, let me pull this up. It translates to mean cause of sexual immorality. So some indecency in her is better translated to cause of sexual immorality. So this rabbi goes, okay, so it's cause of sexual immorality. So if a man, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found cause of sexual immorality in her, and then it says they can get divorced, okay? So this rabbi says, cause of sexual immorality. And then he goes, but what does that mean, right? And he's like, I think I have a new idea of what that means. And here's what he says. He says, why would they say cause of sexual immorality instead of just saying sexual immorality? Why would they say cause of sexual immorality? Maybe it's because they're saying cause and sexual immorality. And he did this little trick with like the grammar and he said, yeah, it probably means and. And then he said, what that means is that a man could divorce his wife for two reasons. One is sexual immorality and the other is cause. That's it. And this became known as any cause divorce. Rabbi Hillel, believe it or not, became very popular because he was telling everybody you could get divorced for any cause. Any reason why you felt that somebody just this wasn't working anymore, you can get divorced. Now, in Jewish culture at the time, like I said, it was very normal for people to very casually actually get divorced and then go on to remarry. It was also very common to be in polygamous families and marriages. And in Roman culture that Paul speaks to that we'll get to in a few minutes, it was, it was, it was very normal as well for people to get divorced. And all you had to do was they called separate. You literally just said, I'm leaving the house. Now we're divorced. And that was it. That's all it took, okay? So uh, this gave people the language with which to say, oh, I have any reason that I really, uh, that I feel is important, that's worthy of divorce, like then I can get divorced, right? So here's what it looked like specifically. Uh, Rabbi Hillel, like I said, was known for no, what is it, any cause divorce. Okay, this is what any cause divorce was. One, had to be initiated by a man because this is what we see in Deuteronomy 24. Man can initiate divorce for indecency or anything else, okay? So uh, the sexual immorality can be more broadly translated to indecency, uh, which means anything from just exposing yourself to like actually engaging in an act with a person. But either way, it's pretty indecent. I think we can all agree. And so that and sexual immorality, um, anything can allow it. So it is in essence groundless divorce. It's like a no-fault divorce. People preferred it to any legitimate divorce, which is interesting, because it wasn't potentially embarrassing and messy. Now, if someone did cheat on you, you actually preferred any cause divorce because you could go, I don't want everybody knowing our business and all the stuff that happened. I'm kind of humiliated by the fact that they cheated on me. They were unfaithful. They did something that was inappropriate. And so let's just keep things simple and we'll say any cause divorce and that's what we'll go with, okay? And, uh, and, and, and oftentimes they're like, yeah, we don't want to get caught up in all that stuff. Uh, the only time that it wasn't better, it seems, is when everybody knew what the person did, 
the rumors were out, the gossip was out, and the person's like, okay, I need people to know that I'm dealing with this seriously. And so people would then go through like the other kind of divorce. Uh, Because of inheritance, many women were in favor of this too. When a couple got married in the Jewish culture, there was an inheritance tied to the woman. And if, uh, if she legitimately like defiled the marriage and did something sinful, like adultery, then guess what? She's out and she doesn't get to keep the money. But any cause divorce, she can have that money back. And so again, people were pretty in favor of this thing. The lights just, just agree to go our separate ways. Okay. The woman always took the kids. The guy usually kept a house and said, let's just go our separate ways. Or a lot of times the guy just, he kept the house because he had like four other wives. And he's like, I got four other wives. You're out of here. And then, okay, fine. I'll take the, uh, the inheritance with me and I'll try to make a life for myself or maybe marry somebody else. And all you had to do was just write a certificate of divorce. This is something called any cause divorce. As people have um, studied first century Judaism and Christianity, they have come to see that this thing called any cause divorce altered the landscape of society completely because it gave people um, a legitimacy to any form of divorce that they wanted to have. Now there's another school. Oh, and the best, most famous example of this, by the way, as we're talking about uh, Christmas and baby Jesus is uh, this poor guy, Joseph. In Matthew 1.19, it says this, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why does it say that? Being a just man resolved to divorce her quietly because let's face it, okay? Joseph's going, this is a weird situation. My wife is pregnant. She's saying it was the Holy Spirit or an angel. You know, I could probably get away with a legitimate divorce here. I think once she gets pregnant enough and everyone can tell, I think it's going to be pretty clear that, like, I have cause to divorce her. But because it says he's a just man, he wants to quietly resolve the divorce, which isn't any cause divorce. That's what Joseph was talking about. That way she could keep her inheritance and go on with this baby, and he could kind of back out like a gentleman and they could get on with their lives, right? So this was a real thing. Now there was another form of divorce that another prominent rabbi was arguing. And as is often the case, the, norm, the common people did not care about this stuff. They were like, all they cared about was, I'm getting a divorce, which rabbi do I go to? Hey, which one's the any, any cause one? I need one of those. Okay, I'm gonna go to him. Hey, which one's the other one? I'm gonna go to one of those. That's what they would do. It's kind of like a lawyer, right? Which lawyer focuses on this? Which one focuses on that? I'm gonna go to them, okay? And so, so the common person, the common Jew didn't really care much about these splitting of hairs, but the religious leaders did. So there was this one rabbi, Hillel, that everybody knew he was the any cause divorce guy. And then there was another rabbi, Rabbi Shammai. And his was the alternative theory, the more traditional one, which was more accurate when you look at the Old Testament. And his was, it was referred to as a cause of sexual immorality divorce, which is an interesting thing to call something, right? A cause of sexual immorality divorce. And here's why it's called that, because he said, this guy's totally screwed up in his interpretation. It's not cause and sexual immorality. It's a cause of sexual immorality. Everybody should know that. And then he does the very important thing that you have to do, which is he says, maybe there's other things in the Old Testament that talk about divorce. Maybe we can look at those too. And he does that. And so apart from just talking about this passage in Deuteronomy, he also talks about a passage in Exodus that says this, if he, a husband, takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment 
of money. Now, to go out for nothing is not a bad thing, by the way. It's saying that she will go out, um, and this is probably a person who married a slave, um, and it's clearly a polygamous relationship because he's adding another wife to himself, right? Uh, mistake number one. Um, and, so, and so, but what it's saying here is this. It's saying that there's other reasons why a marriage can end in divorce. It's saying there are vows. And if you look at the Jewish marriage ceremony, and you even look at our marriage ceremony today, there are a few vows that are repeated throughout. And these vows have to do with being faithful to another person physically. They have to do with providing for them and caring for that person. And really, they have to do with just not neglecting a marriage. And so what he says is he says, look in Exodus along with Deuteronomy, this one rabbi, and he says, everybody knows that there's another form of divorce that we need to understand is the truly biblical one, which is only for reasons that are stated in the Bible. Okay. He says, we can't have any of this, any cause divorce. That's nonsense. It needs to be the things that are stated in scripture. So you basically had no, any cause divorce and you had cause of sexual immorality divorce. And those are the two schools of thought. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Jesus. And here's the question they ask him again. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They say, is that lawful? They're asking him that because that's the debate all the rabbis are having. And they want to know what Jesus thinks. Now, they've done this with Sabbath, holy day type things. They've done this with food that you can eat. They frequently will come up to Jesus and say, what's your take on this thing? And they'll try to trap him. They want to get him isolated with one group versus another group, maybe, or show how he's somehow contradicting himself if he really is the guy who came to fulfill the law. And then what Jesus does, and the way that they say it in a shortened version like this is pretty common because you, if you thought about it this way, if somebody were to go up to a pastor today and say, hey, what's your view on drinking, right? Um, I'd be like, well, you know, if you don't drink, you'll die of dehydration because you need, you know, you need to drink water. Uh, no, that's not what they mean, right? They mean, what's your view on drinking alcohol? But how do, they, how do we refer to it, right? When we talk about it, how do we refer to it amongst us or people who are talking about drinking? We say, what's your view on drinking? Knowing what everybody knows what that means. And that's what, they, that's what they're doing here. They're actually using terminology amongst rabbis that were very commonly known. And so what does Jesus do when they ask him? He does the most wonderful Jesus thing of all. He doesn't answer their question. And he says, I don't want to talk to you about divorce right away. I want to talk to you about marriage. Because they've already screwed things up with how they view marriage. Okay? So he walks them through, and we'll show here in these highlighted red areas. He says, first of all, this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So the first thing that Jesus is saying is this marriage is between two people. He adds the word two before it just says they become one flesh, but he says the two become one flesh. And he's doing that to emphasize something to these people, which is this. Stop marrying like 11 wives. Stop being polygamous. This is not how God intended it. Is that how it happened in the Garden of Eden? I don't think so, right? And so even though people have been practicing it forever, he says, number one, marriage is between two people. And he's also saying something important. He's saying that when they get married, they're going to leave their families and become one flesh. That's a very hard thing in a traditional culture when family is everything. Your whole identity is wrapped up in your family. I was telling the first service that when Ellie and I first got married for about a month, her mom, who is wonderful in every way, so, I, you know, she's wonderful, bear that in mind, she, she called us 
most every day. And we would get the phone call when she got off work usually around five o'clock, six o'clock. And a lot of times, you know, we would just let her go to voicemail, but we would listen, you know, and we were eating dinner or whatever. And, um, and, it, was, and it was always the exact same message. It was like, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Grover, how are you, right? Like that's how it always started, right? She loves saying that for some reason, right? That phone call is the cleaving, okay? That is like Ellie lived at home with her family when she wasn't at school. Um, she grew up there. She was a big part of their lives. They were a big part of her life. And when we got married and moved into our own place, we became one flesh. And that came at the cost, in a sense, of the relationship with, with that family. Now, you who have kids and they've gotten married or they're getting married, you know how much this hurts and how much you don't like this, right? Like that stinks that they have to. Maybe you don't like your kids and you're like, good, get them out of here, right? That's a great thing. But a lot of people just don't like this, okay, because of what it means. Now, here's the thing about it that's interesting is that after an initial period of doing that, you really have become one flesh. And so when Ellie and I moved in with her mom, like a year, two years later, you know, it was cool, right? We were one flesh already. It was very different than if we had just gotten married and lived there to begin with, because we had gone through this period of, they call it leaving and cleaving, right? Becoming one. So Jesus is saying, marriage is between two people, not a million, and it's between a man and a woman. And he's also saying that it is something that involves you sort of removing yourselves and starting a new family. You're starting a new family. This is a new thing between the two of you. And you are going to be more intertwined than two people could possibly be. You're going to become one flesh. How much does it hurt to pull one flesh apart? I don't think we have to get into that because that sounds pretty painful, right? The other thing that he says is this. He then goes on and says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's why he's saying that to them. Because when you get married before God, when you stand up before God, you take these things called vows, okay? And when you take vows before God, it's different than when you don't take them before God. Because when you take vows before God, you are saying, this is now between us and him. Which means a bunch of human beings can't sit around together deciding what's valid, what's good, what's okay when it comes to marriage. He says, you're not allowed to do that because that's man. That's man deciding how it goes. That's man separating. And he says, it's between you and me. And what I tell you really is valid and legitimate. Why? It's very simple because you stood up in front of me and you made oaths about this stuff. Like you did it, you got into it, you know? Now I have done, I've done a number of weddings and I can tell you that people are incredibly elaborate when it comes to forming wedding vows very specific and elaborate things. And I've had couples be like, we need a couple months. We want to really think about this. And they'll write poems and they'll write letters and they'll come up with every possible vow that encapsulates every possible scenario on earth. Right? I mean, that's what we do. We go, what else is there that I could think to bring up in this ceremony? Why? Not because we're afraid that if we miss one that our marriage will fall apart. It's because we're like, I will never leave this person. And I'm just trying to find out how to communicate that to them. And so any possible thing I can think of, any reality, any issue, any struggle, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, right? In good times and in bad. We try to think of every scenario. I mean, it's pretty, it's really spelled out. You know, you ever think about that? We're really spelling things out here, right? And we do that for a reason. 
These are the marriage oaths, the very oaths, most of them at the core that are the very same ones that you read about in the Old Testament. And so we're standing before God and we're saying that to him. And then as marriage begins to get difficult and we begin to struggle and we begin to say, maybe this isn't for us anymore. Maybe we just need to be apart. It's like, well, you took those vows. You went out of your way to stand up before God and say, no matter what happens, I'm going to make it work with this person. I'm going to keep with them. Okay. Now, that's one of the things I love about going back to our vows and like looking at them and thinking about them. I love going to weddings where pastors say, if any of you out there right now are married, maybe hold hands and say these vows to each other as a way of reminding yourself of your vows because we forget about these things. We forget about the vows that we made. We forget about the fact that that's what this is about, right? Is, is us saying we're gonna remain faithful to one another. So Jesus says to them, he says, this is something that is between you and your heavenly father. And so this like, and you can kind of tell where he's going with this because this any cause one is not really that. It's like clear that, that in Jewish culture, they were looking for a way to say, can we just make it okay when people are like, this isn't good. I'm sure God wants me to be in a, in a happier relationship, right? In a better relationship. I'm sure he would want that. He wouldn't want me to be miserable. I don't deserve that. So the second teaching is that marriage is between us and between God. We have entered into that covenant with God and another person, not just this other person. People feel very restricted by that sometimes, especially when marriage gets hard. Like, why is it God's business? Remember that wedding, you know, and all the pomp and circumstance and, and everything? Isn't that what that was about? He goes on and he says, um, so they, they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hard heart, hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. He said, how has God intended it from the beginning? That divorce would never happen because it is an awful, tragic thing. And if you've been through it, you know that. If you've experienced it in your family, which everyone has, I think, in your family in some form or another, you know that. And so what does he say here? He says, Moses allowed you. You notice how they're distorting it from allowed to commanded. Moses told us we need to get divorced if something really bad happens. He says, Moses allowed it and he allowed it due to hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is unrepentance. And so the third thing Jesus is teaching is that divorce is allowed when someone is truly unrepentant of hard heart. This word is used in the Old Testament, the word that Moses used. The word that Moses used is used in the Old Testament, and it's used to describe somebody who is unrepentant towards God. It's used when talking about Judah and their response towards God. As an unrepentant, hard-hearted people who refuse to turn back to God. I don't know if you know this or not, but God continually forgives people who come to him in repentance. But when we get in real trouble is when we stop repentance. We stop apologizing. We stop trying to make it right. And we instead develop what? A hard heart, a calloused heart. And so Jesus is teaching that because no marriage can survive that. A marriage cannot actually function when one person has shut down, refused to fulfill their vow, and has said, this is now just how it's going to be. 
So divorce is allowed when someone is truly unrepentant. Now, the, the, the wonderful thing about Christian marriage, I think, versus a non-Christian marriage, is a Christian marriage is rooted in the idea of forgiveness. It's rooted on the foundation of forgiveness. And so repentance goes a long way. And this leads to, um, Jesus then says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's finally answering their question, and he's doing something that he often doesn't do. He's picking a side. And he's saying, so I t- say to you, in, in culmination of all of that, whoever divorces his wife, I'll skip this part for a second, and marries another, commits adultery. Okay, so there's an exception in the middle there. Whoever divorces wife, marries another, commits adultery. What's the exception? The exception is except for sexual immorality. And he's saying that this rabbi who is teaching this, that that is the one. And he's using this language because that's the language that these rabbis used. And so what Jesus is saying is this, divorce is allowed and it's allowed for the reasons that were cited in the Old Testament that these rabbis supported, that this rabbi supported, that we go on to see Paul's support in Corinthians, in, in the letters to Corinth, which is divorce is allowed for, you know, the three A's, abandonment, which often happened in Jewish culture. A group of guys went out of town to party, and then one less guy came back, and they went, oh yeah, he's uh, found a new family over there. So anyway, you're good. He said, you're good. Keep the house or whatever. And that's abandonment. But abandonment isn't just that. Because abandonment also, from what we're reading about in Exodus, is when a man takes a wife but refuses to give to this person the very basic things involved in a marriage, right? To actually care about them and care for them. So abandonment and then abuse. Because abuse was also rampant at this time. And this was one of the reasons why there was any cause divorce. Was so that women themselves could even leave in a situation that was abusive and they weren't forced to remain there, and adultery. This is Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. This is the part on divorce, at least. Now, all of these things to say, it's clear from what Jesus says throughout all of this, that divorce is tragic. That it it is not at all how God has intended marriage to function. But as we live in a fallen world, we encounter it. And as I said, every one of our families has been touched by this. And this is evidence from this passage here. So then we read on one more, um, a little, or no, and, and, and this is also something that, that Paul, like I said, he, uh, he reiterates in Corinthians and the letters to the church in Corinth. He talks to them about a lot more specific things. You see this happen a lot in the epistles. You see Jesus teach something, and then years down the road, you see people like Paul explaining how this works in practical life, because now people have had a while to live it out. And they've got questions for him. Hey, Paul, like, hey, pastor, hey, missionary, hey, apostle, when is this okay? When is this okay? When is this okay? And he's saying to them, like, here's when this is okay. Here's when this is okay. Here's when this is allowed. And what Paul says to the people that he talks to in Corinth is he tells them, like, here are the circumstances in which it is okay for you to end a marriage. And it's, and it's exactly what this rabbi that Jesus agreed with was also saying. It is for these reasons. Now, um, 
something that, is, uh, that, that also comes up here. Oh, yeah. So they respond to Jesus this way. After this passage in Matthew 19, they come back and they go, the disciples said to him, this is his disciples now talking, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry, right? But he said to them, emphasis mine, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Okay, this is one of the most revolutionary things that Jesus is saying. Because here's why. In Jewish culture, marriage is compulsory, which means you have to get married. Okay? In Roman, in Roman law, in Roman culture, not Christian, but Roman, which Paul's speaking more to, the Roman like, authorities required people to get married. They wanted people to get married because they didn't like the idea of a bunch of single people running around causing trouble and a bunch of illegitimate children being born and then being the responsibility of the state. And so they encouraged and enforced the idea of marriage, you know? Rome wasn't just a place where people, I mean, believe me, these weren't healthy marriages, these weren't good marriages, but they were compulsory. And essentially, the way that the Jewish culture developed was you were not a real person, you were not a complete person, and you had no sense truly of family if you were the one that stayed at home with their parents or you were the one that never left the family because you never got married that that was a sense of dramatic incompleteness. And so when Jesus says, not everyone can receive the same, when Paul says in Corinthians, when, when it sounds like he's actually telling people that getting married is bad, he's actually speaking to a group of people at a time that's going through severe famine, and he's saying to them, there's not, and, and, and there's not even food to go around for everybody, and so he's saying, think really carefully about how much you'll have to take care of this person. And it might be better for a lot of you to consider not getting married, unless you just can't control yourself physically. He says then, okay, fine, get married, you know? And so this is the other thing that Jesus is teaching. Marriage is not required. Now, on top of that, divorce is not compulsory or required. What does that mean? It means that when someone does something really, really, really bad in a marriage, it doesn't mean you automatically have to divorce them. It means that you can forgive them if they are repentant. And this is a huge shift. This idea, do you, do you remember how they were characterizing Moses' teaching? Moses commanded us, right? He commanded us. Jesus is saying marriage is not required and divorce is not required and remarriage is not required. In the culture in which they lived, you had to get married and then you easily got divorced, but then you had to get married again because heaven forbid, heaven forbid, you be single. That was the worst thing ever. Okay, can you imagine that? Could you imagine living in a society in which heaven forbid you be single? It's kind of like living in a society in which heaven forbid you not be able to have kids or you not choose to have kids. I mean, whoa, blasphemy, right? Everyone knows true blessing and abundance only come from marriage and children and family, right? That's the only way that it can come. Imagine if you lived in a subset of that culture. Let's say a group of people who gathered around a common set of ideals who further reinforced the idea that if you're not married, that if you're not having kids, that you're not complete. Could you imagine how hard that would be? But we don't live in that, so it's fine, right? The reality is in the church, 
we often make these things compulsory. And the reason why we have like marriages that are a mess, we have divorce happening way more than it should, is because we have told each other, you just have to do it. Go get married as soon as you can, as fast as you can, with this person, whatever. We know that there's no possible life without that. And then if for any reason a marriage falls apart and those two flat to have one flesh gets ripped again into two, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that anybody would actually just remain either waiting for that person or single. I'm not saying they have to. I'm saying that that would even be an option because of course you can't possibly be complete without another person. And this is one of those times in which if you really believe this stuff that the Bible tells us about God and about who we are in him, then you absolutely are complete just with God. That you absolutely are complete with him. I mean, everybody knows if you've been married or if you've had kids, that the death to those things is the expectation that they fulfill you wholeheartedly. Everybody knows what it's like to go through that phase in a marriage where you realize, wait a second, they're not everything I thought they were going to be. And now what do I do with that? Do I resent them? Do I build up baggage? Do I begin saying, you always do this, you always do that? Or do I recognize that this is what it's like to be married to a sinful person? And I sure am glad that I have God because he does fulfill me fully in ways that my spouse never will, in ways that having children never will. And that that's a wonderful thing. That's one of the freedoms that we experience as Christians. We all know what it's like to go find a group of people who will tell us what we want to hear. And I think that it's often true that in marriage, when things begin to get difficult, we can go one of two routes. We can seek counseling. We can seek advice from those who we know will be advocates for marriage, for working through it. Or we can brush things under the rug. We can ignore them and hope that they'll get better when usually they won't, distract ourselves with other things. And then when it gets bad enough, we go to the people who will say, you don't deserve that. She shouldn't treat you like that. That's not, how, that's not respect. You deserve respect. He's not loving you. That's not love. You deserve love. God wouldn't want that for you. We all know the people who will tell us that, who will agree with us about that. And then we know those who will say, here's what God's word says. How do we reconcile this situation with that? Jesus is telling us that there is like marriage is a beautiful thing, but it is not compulsory. He doesn't command us to do it. He doesn't command us to get out of it so we can get into another better one as soon as it goes south because it, they will all go south. The key to a healthy marriage is repentance. The reason Moses told people you could get divorced is because of their hard hearts and their unwillingness to repent. And so for us, as we looked at what Jesus is saying about this, it's important that we ask ourselves that question. If you're married to somebody, do I have a posture towards this person myself of repentance? Because that's the only way that this marriage will continue to remain healthy 
Am I seeking help when we need it, when things are small rather than when they become large? And then the other thing I'll say is this, and this is just a practical thing as a pastor that I've seen. I've counseled and met with so many couples whose marriages are struggling, and I can see the wheels turning. I know it's scary, but I can see into people's heads. I can see the wheels turning, and I can see that they're already thinking about the next relationship that they're going to be in that's going to be way better than this one. And I've said to people, don't do this because you're thinking about the next good thing. You're in this. You're one flesh with this person. Work this out the best that you can. And don't think that what this is about is something better that you deserve from someone else. Something better that's going to come along that this person's keeping you from. Because that will kill a marriage that could be saved oftentimes. Some of the greatest miracles that I have seen in the church are marriages that are saved. And some of the times that I've seen people the most hopeless is in marriages. Feeling like there is no way, there is no way that this person could ever be my friend again, could ever be somebody I love again. And my encouragement to people in those situations is, do you believe that God can do miracles? And a miracle is God intervening in the natural course of things. That God can intervene into something. That God can do the craziest thing to us, which is soften a person's heart. Now, I am not saying that if you're in a situation of abuse and of abandonment and of neglect and of adultery and this person is hard-hearted, that you have to just stay there because that's what it means to have faith in God. But I'm saying for those situations, when there are hard hearts, even then, you can ask God, God, would you intervene? And you can hope that he will actually do something that when we're honest, I mean, it is amazing to me, the lack of, the lack of hope that I've seen. I've had very close friends say to me, like, I had a friend that I was, that I was meeting with for, for years, a guy that I was discipling. And he said to me at one point, I hate my wife. I hate my wife. The reason I liked meeting with him was because he was honest. And he said, that's how I feel. And he said, if you ever told me that she could be my friend again, I don't believe you. And I'm just going to kind of wait it out. I'm just going to kind of wait till my kids grow up, till they graduate, and then we'll probably be done. And two years later, he said, he said, I love my wife because of some things that had happened in their marriage. Now God had softened her heart. And he said, it's a miracle. And he said, I can't believe I used to say those things. That's not a normal thing that just happens. That's not a book that you read or a class that you took. That is God intervening in a marriage. And that's the beauty of marriages being between us and God. Why we stand before him and we say vows before him and we bring him into it. Because then it's not just two people trying their best to make a mess work out. It's a beautiful thing that God is involved in that he can miraculously work through. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your hand in our lives and in our relationships. And we are grateful that this thing called marriage is something born from you, Lord, that you brought the first man and the first woman together. You cleave them as one flesh and you wanted them to be united in a marriage relationship, Lord. God, I pray for those who are struggling here right now, who struggle to have hope, to believe that you could make something out of their relationship that is good. I pray that you would give them hope, that you would put others around them who would be advocates for their marriage. And I pray that we as a church would be advocates for marriage for people and repentance and reconciliation. And I pray for those who have experienced the pain of divorce, 
the absolute terrible pain that is involved in that, Lord, that you would give them a sense of healing and a sense of freedom, not having to live their whole lives under the, the shadow of, of some regrettable relationship that, that, that got so ugly and caused so much damage, because I could only imagine the pain of one flesh being ripped back into two, Lord. We thank you for this teaching. We thank you that Jesus engaged with the people where they were at in the culture in which they were dealing with these things. And we pray that he would continue to do that with us here, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, in the Old Testament, the first divorce ever was between God and his people. And it's why that word hard-hearted that Moses uses when talking about people divorcing each other comes first from uh, the way God's people were towards him. God made a covenant relationship with his people, and he honored it. He was a really good spouse, and his people continually sinned against him. And when those people were repentant towards him, he forgave them, and their relationship could continue. But it wasn't until their hearts were hardened towards him that God said, I cast you out because I can't be in a relationship with you anymore. And when we talk about marriage, we're talking about something that is built on the foundation of the relationship that God has with us. And so just like everything else is driven by the gospel itself, we serve a God that we need, like we just sang. We need him more than anything else. And we can have a relationship with him as long as we approach him with humility and repentance. In the very same way, we can have relationships that are healthy and that are wonderful and that are filled with the Holy Spirit and with Christ leading them if we're willing to simply be humble with one another and repent constantly. So that's our job as a church, as a people, whether we're in marriages or not, is to be a people who are humble, a people who repent, and a people who say, at all costs, I will not have a hard heart towards God or others. Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.